This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. How's everybody doing? It's my first chance to be back with you in a few weeks. Man, it's nice to be here. My name's Kevin. If it's your first time visiting with us, I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff. And today, we're going to start uh, doing something that, that we've done the, the weekend of Thanksgiving for the last few years. And I, I love this because it's a chance for us to entertain the questions that you've asked. So whether it be online or through inserts into your worship guides over the last month, we've collected questions. And I want you to look at this quote uh, with me as we get ready to start today. Look at this quote. My faith has been more born out of questions than fear or certainty combined. My faith has been more born out of questions than fear or certainty combined. And when you read that quote, you might think that's Augustine or maybe Billy Graham or even one of our modern church leaders, but really that's me. <laughs> that's, and that's me. Um, and to be honest with you, it, there, there have been, in, in, in my faith journey, uh, there, there have been a lot of questions along the way. And I think one of the things that I learned early on was to not shy away from questions, to stare them straight into the face. Here's why. It's the first thing in your notes today. God is not scared of your questions. But you know who is? You are. You're scared of them. And oftentimes that fear causes us to run and to hide, to bury them, to not address them, to not put them at the forefront of our faith. But you you know the thing about faith is it always has a little bit of question to it. The Bible says the faith is the substance of things unseen. It's not based on certainty. And see, God's not scared of your questions. Number two, this is important for you to know, God isn't obligated to answer your questions. One of my early mentors was a man who, in his young adult life, had went through some of the most traumatic things that I'd ever heard of. he, He had had... It really ripped his family apart with decisions that he wholeheartedly felt like he was doing the right thing. And later in his life, when I was sitting down with him and talking to him about it, he said, you know, Kevin, a lot of questions from that. And some of those along the way, something would happen. And I would finally understand, well, I see, I see now. He said, there's a lot of questions that still linger. It's 20 years since all of that happened. See, God's not obligated to answer our questions. See, like a a good father, God wants to answer our questions. I'm not afraid of my kids' questions, but I also, like a good father, know that there are some answers that they're not prepared yet to hear or understand. I'm not afraid to use because I told you so. All right? I'm not afraid to. Because I know that sometimes the explanation that's behind because I told you so, their minds cannot comprehend it. And sometimes the answers that we're looking for, 
we're not in the position in life that we need to be to hear it. God's not obligated to answer our questions. But number three, if you're open, if you're open to him, God can use your questions. If we'll open up to God, be vulnerable to him, and say, God, here, here's, I, I've, I'm struggling with this. And I, I've, in my work with, with believers, I've, I've found that, that it doesn't matter where you're at in your faith journey, whether you're a first-generation Christian, the first person in your family to give your life to Jesus, or, or whether you're living in the legacy of generations of men and women who came before you, who love Jesus, and you love Jesus, there are still questions that we wrestle with. And if we'll be vulnerable and open with God, God can take those questions and use them to help us grow. So what we did is we collected a lot of your questions, and today I'm going to answer them for you in just kind of like mini rapid-fire succession. Y'all ready for this? Ready to get started? Number one, why is our church called Vortex? The first question. Why is our church called I love this question. What a great question, right? Because you probably think we named it that so it would sound like an energy drink or something like that, right? That's, that's what cool churches have. They sound like an energy drink. But here's, here's the thing. When, when I thought uh, and, and kind of had got my, my foot planted in ministry and started that journey, uh, there are a few verses that started to stick out to me that describe the life that God wants for us. And the first one's really found in John 10.10. 10. This is where Jesus says, I came, this is the purpose, so that they can have life and have it to the full. Uh, so that they can have authentic life. I came, Jesus came so that you can have life, which means that breathing and eating and pooping and sleeping is not life. There is something beyond that that transcends that, that is life, and Jesus came so that we can experience that. The only way that we're ever going to have that is through Jesus. And then John fourteen six, which I call the boldest statement in human history, because Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, Jesus standing in, in a, a multicultural society where people, much like today, say you can get to God through whatever path you want to go through. You can be a Hindu. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a, a, a good Muslim. All of those paths go to the same God, Jesus says, I'm the way. The only way to the Father is through me. Bold statement. And out of those two, I I kind of figured out these two very important principles. That number one, Jesus is the center of an authentic life. Jesus is not a priority. He's the center. He's the center of your family, the center of your relationships, the center of your vocation. He's the center of your finances. He's the center of your life. Everything you do, Jesus is the center of it. See, sometimes we can draft a series of priorities and we can say, well, Jesus got my hour this morning so I can behave in business however I want to today. That's not the kind of life Jesus wants for us. He wants to be the center. And really part of our church's mission is drafted out of it, that we exist to invite people in Stanley County and our surrounding communities to make Jesus the center of their lives. The second important principle that we get out of that is that authentic life is only found in the journey to follow him. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All right, I'm going to give you the direction. All right, I'm going to be your true north. And if you'll follow me, I'm the life. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if you really want to get to God, you want to be reconciled to God, the only way to do that is through me. Authentic life is found in a never-ending journey to chase after Jesus. So when you put those principles together, it looks like this. Jesus is at the center, and there we are. And we experience Him, and we respond to Him. And we experience Him, and we respond to Him. And all the while, we get closer and closer, and it looks like a vortex. That's where the name of our church came from. It's a vivid picture of what authentic life is supposed to look like. There you go. Number one, why, how, why is our church called Vortex? Number two, is it okay? We're going to have some fun, y'all. Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? <laughs> y'all ready for this one? Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? This is a really important question, Okay. This is, an important, this is an important question, n- not because of alcohol itself, okay? This is an important question because it describes how will we, as believers and followers of Jesus, interact with the world that we live in, okay? You can substitute alcohol at the end, and you can say, will, is it okay for a believer to watch an R-rated movie? Is it okay for a Christian to read a romance novel? Is it okay for a Christian to eat wings at Hooters? Because they have good wings, right? That's what I've heard. That's what everyone says. That's why they go there, apparently. Is it okay? All right? Is it okay? And so the way that we answer that question and the, the way that, that, that generations immediately before us have answered those questions is by giving an abstinence question uh, answer. That, that Christians in, in our context, especially in the South, have been more defined by what they don't do. So you're a Christian when you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't hang out with girls that do, right? That's what a Christian is. A Christian is defined typically by what they don't do instead of what they do. And so that cultural tension of a question is very important. So let me answer both sides of that because there is no simple answer to the question, can a Christian or should a Christian or is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? There's a few truths that I want to point out. The first is that the consumption of alcohol is not sinful. It is not. Jesus in his first miracle made wine. And it was apparently really good because the people at the party got excited about his wine, right? Uh, he didn't bring yellowtail, right? He, he brought like the good wine, right? And even in Paul's letters to Timothy, and Paul knows that Timothy's struggling with a physical ailment. And so he instructs Timothy, drink some wine. It'll help your stomach. See, The consumption of alcohol is not sinful, but number two, this is very important, the over-consuming of alcohol or drunkenness is. All throughout the, the scriptures, when sinfulness is listed, drunkenness is listed in there as well. So here's this tension that it's okay to drink, but it's not okay to get drunk. Okay? Y'all with me? And so to answer the question, I would say this. For many, it's okay, but...
but it's not okay for everyone in all situations. Here, here's the, the kind of background to answering this question because really what we want to do is empower you as a church to, to pray to God, lean into his convictions for your life, and then live through those. You see, the gospel sets us free. It sets us free. What a powerful thing. And in the New Testament world, when the, the New Testament church was starting to emerge, people started saying, well, Jesus set me free so I can do whatever I want to do. That doesn't really work, does it? So Jesus is giving me grace when I sin, so why don't I sin some more so that there will be more grace? Right? No, that, that's not the representative attitude of an authentic relationship with God, someone who's being changed and transformed. There's a verse that comes out of 1 Corinthians 10 where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth which dealt with this issue a lot. And he deals directly with that attitude. I want you to see this. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So don't be concerned for your own good but for the good of others see he goes through and says that some things are not good or beneficial when it comes to alcohol if you come from a family that has an abusive alcohol past it's not good for you to drink alcohol right if you yourself has been if you've struggled with addiction and alcohol it's probably not wise if you're the leader of a group of people, especially young people. It's probably not wise for you to drink that around them, right? Even for me as a pastor, I'm, I'm not afraid to drink a beer, but if I'm out at a restaurant in our city, I won't drink one. Because it's not good in every situation. It's not beneficial. You'll never see me posting pictures on Instagram or Facebook of, look at this cool beer I'm drinking right now, all right? Because it doesn't benefit the gospel at all. Right? So we don't need to take the freedom and use it as a license. Y'all with me? Freedom is a responsibility. And that's how we need to interact. There, so there you go. Complicated answer for what seems like a pretty complicated question. Number three, <laughs> did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Did Adam and Eve have... How many of y'all have ever wondered this? Back here, or you're wondering it right now. I don't know, didn't they? You know, the, the belly button, this is a great, I, I, love, I love that I get to answer this question because it's one of those that I would probably never teach on. Um, but it's a great, this is great, all right? Our belly button, signif- it, it's a significant mark on our body because it, it shows that we gained life through pre-existing life. Our mothers gave us life, all right? That's, that's what a belly button signifies. But for Adam and Eve, their experience was quite different. God gave them life. They did not have belly buttons. And I, I love what the writer Ken Ham said. He said that in the, the pre-flood era, Adam and Eve's absence of a belly button would have been one of the greatest tourist attractions ever. That, that in an era where, where their bodies probably would have been in, in, in the Mediterranean area, uh, been very exposed, their family would have noticed the difference. And you can imagine, you know, this is prehistory, so history's not being written down, and the grandkids would come up and go, Grandma, you wearing a bikini today. 
why do you not have a belly button? And she would go, baby, it's real simple. When you got life, you got it from your mom and your dad. But when I came to life, it was because God made me. And all throughout those first few generations, the story of God's creation would have been passed down directly through oral history simply because that one distinguishing fact was there. What a great, what a great question. Next one. Why does the Bible not tell us about dinosaurs? We've got this question every year. And I, every year I've been like, I'm not going to answer that question. And it just keeps showing up every year. So I thought, why not? The Bible does talk about dinosaurs. And now here's the thing about what the Bible talks about. The Bible always talks about its context. And so the Bible is written by men who are telling their stories. And they're telling firsthand accounts of what they saw with Jesus or firsthand accounts of the history of Israel. They're telling the firsthand accounts of how God spoke through them and the prophets. The Bible is firsthand accounts. And when we tell our stories, well, we tell our stories in our context, right? So thousands of years from now, if someone read your story, they'd probably read about a dog. And they may go, what is that? said, beagle. What is a beagle? You know, I don't know what they're talking about. The reason that the, there's not a great wealth of information about dinosaurs is that obviously dinosaurs are way prehistory, right? So way before written records of history were kept. But there is a mention of something in the oldest book of the Bible. The oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job, way before Genesis or the first five books, the Pentateuch, were ever written. And in the book Job, in chapter 40, verses 15 through 24, God looks to Job, who's questioning him. And he says, Job, have you seen the behemoth? And goes to describe the largest created animal ever. What he really is describing as God talks to him is a brachiosaurus. Now, it sounds a little bit like an elephant in the description until he starts to talk about the tail and what the animal eats. And it looks just like the dinosaurs that you've seen on all of the movies had as figurines. So it, the Bible does talk about it, but we need to remember something that's very important about the Bible. The Bible is not a scientific explanation of the creation of life from the very beginning until now. That's not why the Bible was written. It wasn't written to answer those questions. While there's little nuances of Scripture that we can see inside of it that help us understand that, its entire thrust is to help us know that we're screw-ups. That's what the Bible is there for. To help us know that God created perfection and our sin blew it up, but God came in through Jesus and rescued us from our sin. That's the point of the Scriptures. So the scriptures make that point from the very beginning until the very end, all right? So it's not going to answer every question, but it definitely does mention the dinosaur there in Job 40. Number five, how do we disciple new Christians as a church? What a, what a very thoughtful, important question to ask. We, we literally, in, in just our, our few years of existence, have seen hundreds of people make commitments to Jesus, I mean, we're, we're averaging now in, in attendance well over 300 people a Sunday, which is awesome, right? Probably have consistently attending around 500 people. Awesome. 
many of those people have given their lives to Jesus in recent years. And, and this is one of those questions. How do we do that? Well, earlier I told you that part of our mission was to invite the people that are in our community to make Jesus the center of their lives. Well, the second part of that is to invest in their journey, right? If we're going to live in that never-ending vortex of a journey to get closer and closer to Jesus who's at the center of our lives, part of our mission as a church is to do that. So let me explain how we go about doing that. But before I do that, I just want you to think about this. Anytime I've ever had a conversation with a a lifelong follower of Christ, someone who's spent 20 years, 30 years, 40 years following Jesus, if I ask them, what is the most significant factor to you growing, you becoming the person that you are today? They're going to give me three answers typically. Number one is a relationship. I tell you before, all right, so I say that most people, when they start to tell their stories and start, start, start to talk about the bad things that they've done in life, it always starts with, well, I had these friends, right? You had, you had, and you all have those friends. You know what I'm talking about, right? But in the same way, some of the best things in our lives starts out with, well, I had this friend, or I had a grandma, or my mom and my dad, they were. There's a relationship that's there. The second thing that's almost invariably there is that there's going to be a hard time. There's a hard time. One of my mentors is a guy who coached football in South Carolina, was an assistant coach at Auburn for a while. He's a a brilliant leader. He's a superintendent in a school district in South Carolina. And he would tell you that up until the time he found out that his young son had cancer, his faith had always been just real bland. He went to church and he was devoted to serving and giving, but it had never been a vital, active part of his life. But when he found out that his young son had cancer, he knew that God was the only solution to that. And in that time, he turned to him, relied on him, God healed his son, and even to this day, he's a vibrant follower of Christ because of a very difficult time. And the third thing is that you'll get them to say, that I have been persistent in my commitment. I haven't given up. Proverbs says that the righteous fall seven times, but they rise eight. See, lifelong committed followers of Christians are not perfect. They don't have all the answers, but they are hard-headed and committed to following Jesus. When they screw up, they get up. They don't lay there in their mess. So, Here's how we invest in that. Number one, we invest through small groups. That's where we give you an opportunity to make a relationship with someone else that's going to be there for you. Because you know what? You may not be in a storm right now, but one is coming. One is coming. On the horizon, there's a storm that's brewing, and very soon, if you're not in one right now, there will be a storm in your life. And you need friends around you that are going to anchor you They're going to pull you back. When you start to drift away, they're going to be the people that say, no, I'm not letting you do that. I care too much about you. Because relationships matter. The second thing is that we have something called the Vortex Growth Track. We we do two specific classes, starting point and next steps. And in both of those classes, we teach key components of what does it mean to follow Jesus. 
Many of you have attended a Church 101 or a Starting Point. All right, Essentials 201, and what we used to call Discovery 301, we've rolled that into one experience called Next Steps, which is really designed for those of you who are interested in taking the next steps with Jesus. We, in one hour, we address prayer and Bible study and give you a personality test and give you uh, a spiritual gifts inventory, a passion assessment, help you understand you so that you can understand how God can use you. We'll offer that class again in January. So that's how we do it. And the last thing is by getting you plugged in and serve teams, getting you investing, using your gifts and talents to make a difference in the life of someone else, building relationships with them, using your talents for the glory of God. All of those things invest in someone's journey. So that's how we disciple new Christians as a church. We just finished a series that we called How to Be Rich. It was a, a four-week series on generosity. Last week, Pastor Jimmy knocked it out of the park with the message on, on how to view our wealth through the lens of eternity, knowing that, that the financial decisions that you make right now impact other people's eternity. What a powerful thing to realize. that We're often going to run out of time. This is, was one of my favorite points he brought out last week, that we're going to run out of time before we run out of money. So why hold on to it, right? And so when you come through a series like that, there's always going to be some financial questions. So we've got, got a couple of those that I wanted to, to deal with today. Here's one. This is, a, this is a heartbreaking, difficult question, but I want to deal with it. How can I tithe when I can barely pay my bills and buy food? How can I tithe when I can barely pay my bills and buy food? Now, I'm, I'm going to be as pastoral as I can in answering this, but I want to give you my answer and then explain it. Okay, here's the answer. The, the problem with the equation is never on God's side, it's on ours. The problem with the equation is never on God's side, it's on ours. So let me put it in a different context. God's plan for reconciling relationships is through grace and forgiveness. But what do you do when you're the person and you say, no, what they did is way too bad. I can't forgive them. I can't. See, the problem isn't like, oh, too bad of an offense equals not forgiving. No, no. God always looks at us and says, no matter how significant your failure, I forgive you because the price has been paid for that forgiveness. In, in our finances, the, the equation is a little bit more basic because God has directed us to tithe, which is to percentage give 10% of our income towards His kingdom, all right? And we talked a lot about that over the last few weeks. If you want some instruction on that, go back and listen to How to Be Rich. But here's the problem with that question. If it's God's plan, the problem is never on his side of the equation, it's on ours. And I've sat down with so many people who say, I can't afford to tithe. I, I can barely pay my bills. Well, how about this? Why don't you bring your bills in? We'll look at your bills, and then we'll, we'll try to help you learn how to manage your money a little bit more. And they come in, they're paying three fifty a month for cable. They're like, three f- no wonder you can't do much. You're dropping a ton of money. The problem isn't your, your capacity to give. The problem is you're trying to buy a lifestyle you can't afford. That's where the problem is. And you can't give generously because you're trying to pay for something that you can't afford. 
The problem's in the bills, not in the tithe. Okay, second question. Where in the New Testament are Christians directed to tithe? That's like the, the sucker punch in the gut for the pastor, right? Like, all these verses you've been talking about that have to do with tithe, they all come out of the Old Testament. Where does the New Testament tell us that we're supposed to tithe? Because there's this notion that, that tithing is not a, a New Testament idea. And I'm going to explain that, okay? Oftentimes when we talk about tithing, we talk about tithing out of the context of Malachi 3. Malachi 3 is the verse that we've been using in our tithing challenge a lot recently. And, and it's important. What a, what a great verse to lock into because it takes chapters and chapters and books and books of teaching on tithing and condenses it all right into one verse. In Malachi 3, God is, is talking to the church in an era where the church has walked away from tithing. He actually says to them, hey, you're robbing me. You're taking what, what I directed you, this tithe, and you're taking it away from me. And what's happened is the church has grown inept and incapable of being what the church is supposed to be, a redemptive entity on the face of the planet. I don't think that's much unlike the world that we live in today. Imagine if in America, every Christian tithed. Imagine the church. Imagine what the church could do to poverty. Imagine what the church could do to educate and disciple and mentor young men. Imagine what the church could do to build up struggling communities. Imagine... Because God is facing the same thing. And in Malachi 3.10, he, he, through the voice of the prophet Malachi, revisits a lot of the teaching on tithing. And here's the reason that tithing is so important. It's not that God needs your money, that God needs something from you. God is concerned, not that he wants something from you, but that what you have has caught a hold of you. That what you possess, what you have in your bank account is something that you're holding tightly to that is corrupting your heart and keeping you from living the kind of life that He wants you to live. And so in Malachi 3, God directs us to tithe. But I want to take you to a verse where in in Jesus' own words, Jesus is approaching a group called the Pharisees. They're uh, religious leaders that, that are, are very strict about the way that they observe the, the law, the teachings of the Bible. And you're going to see that he says, this is a deeper issue. In, Mal- in Matthew 23, 23, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So does Jesus answer the question for us right there? Are Christians directed to tithe in the New Testament? Yes, they are. But the issue isn't tithing. The issue isn't whether you can write a check for 10%. The issue is your heart. Do you have a heart that cares about the kingdom of God? 
Is, is the, the gifts, the time, the talent, the treasure that God has invested in you, is it being leveraged to make a difference in this world? And see, sometimes we ask questions and kind of expose ways that we're thinking that aren't thoroughly healthy. This is one of those questions. Because the kind of fundamental principle behind this is that the Old Testament, well, that's, that, that was for them. The New Testament, that's for us. And really, that's not a good way to think about the Bible at all. The Bible is, to some degree, a mirror. The Old Testament looking forward to the redemption of man through Jesus and the New Testament looking backwards on the redemption of man through Christ Jesus. Most of the things that you find in the New Testament, you find in the Old Testament. Most of the things you find in the Old Testament, you find them again in the New Testament. If you didn't listen to the series Roots that we just did a few months ago, go back. I I did a great job throughout that series trying to expose that tension of how things are in the Old Testament. But here's, I want you to see how Jesus approaches this. How do we think about the law and the prophets? That would be the Old Testament. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of all the prophecies that he could become that perfect sacrifice. So I want to take a few moments and just try to answer as many questions as I can get through that we, we, we call this the shotgun section. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. This is not long, drawn-out answers. Uh, some of them, we're just going to have some fun with this. Y'all ready to go? All right, number one, do I have the right to be happy? No, you don't. No, you don't. Can I just teach on this for a second? Um, the Bible says you have the right to die. That's what the Bible says. You have the right to die. You, you've earned death. All we like... S- Sheep have gone astray. Each one turned on to our own way. Every one of us. The wages of sin is death. You, you, you have earned death. That's what we've earned. But Jesus died a death. And then in Galatians, the Bible tells us that he did something interesting. That he invited us into his new life. That we can be crucified with Christ, and then in that experience a resurrection into something that is brand new and authentic. And I can tell you this, as a follower of Jesus, the Bible does promise you that one of the fruits of those roots is joy. Joy and happiness are quite different. Happiness is a moving target, Happiness is always circumstantial. Joy is something that grows from the roots up. So do you have the right to be happy? No. And if you can learn what I just said, it'll transform your relationships, especially if you're in here and you're married. It'll transform your marriage. Because think about this. You'll be the most happy in your marriage when you die. When you die to yourself, your own desires, your own wishes, you will be the most happy because you will experience joy as God raises new life in that relationship. Number two, please can the lights be turned up in the service? No, they can't. (laughs) They can't. Um, And just to explain, lighting is one of the most expensive things we have 
and, and to buy more would be, would be kind of pointless. We cannot get the lights in the back high enough because of the ceiling to get a good angle on you. And these side lights that are in the theater, well, they're turned all the way up already, okay? So we're getting as much on you as we can right now. Number three, can women preach? Yes, women can preach, okay? Uh, one of my favorite preachers is a woman. Her name is Christine Kane. I met her a few times. Um, can women, l- let me just a- add on to the back of it. Can women pastor? All right, we have a woman pastor on staff. Our children's pastor is a woman, all right? And we, there, there are a lot of theological discussions that go behind that, but I'm just going to leave it right there. Number four, how can you be a strong Christian when people you love always leave you and bring you down? Heartbreaking question. I had these friends. I had these friends. Let me just be honest with you. If the people that, that are bringing you down and breaking you down are your friends, find new friends. Okay? Find new friends. If the person that is, that is breaking you down and is, is your spouse, okay? And Peter talks directly about how to deal with a spouse that's not a believer. And here's what he says. Don't nag them. All right? Don't shame them. Serve them and live reverentially in your home and they will see the goodness of Christ and their hearts will be turned to him. There you go. Um, How should I deal with family members, number five, who don't love Jesus and aren't living for him? How should I deal with family members who don't love Jesus and aren't living for him? Um, In John chapter one, the Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. It says that actually twice. In, in that chapter. Here's, here's, I love that paradigm and understanding how to love someone because grace without truth is enabling. Truth without grace is brutality. Okay? But grace and truth is love. Okay? Jesus came full of grace and truth. How do we love our family members that don't love Jesus? We love them with grace and truth okay and the last one i'll deal with here is number six why why do things seem to go wrong when i start to pray and then i lose faith faith Uh, uh, what do you expect you've been living in in the stream of culture and you step out to step against stream you immediately when you choose to follow Jesus, meet resistance. It's natural. The world is geared to flow against God. So when you choose to follow him, you step against the flow of the world. But when you go to the gym, you don't pick up the lightest weight that you can carry. You pick up the heaviest one that you can work out with. You know why? Because resistance makes you stronger. Resistance makes you stronger. And if we're going to be persistent, we need to understand sometimes that's going to knock us down, but we're going to stand right back up and keep following. And I wanted to end with this question. Does God really forgive all your sins even when they are really, really bad? You know, this is a heartbreaking question because I think that some of us have carried around this notion in the back of our minds that I've done some really bad things and that's taken me out of the favor of God. But if I could possibly do really good things, I could earn his love and affection. And that's not true even in a little bit. A few months ago, we did a series called Friends with Benefits where we looked at Psalm 103 and looked at 
the writer David's list of the benefits that he found in his relationship with God. I want you to see what the Bible says. Look at the scripture. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. For many of us today in the room, that question of forgiveness is something that we've wrestled with our entire lives. Can God forgive somebody like me? Somebody who's done what I've done. Somebody who's been as bad as I've been. Somebody who's turned his back on him so many times. Can God forgive me? And the answer is yes. If you'll receive Jesus today, he'll forgive all your sins. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you're a God that won't leave us alone won't let us be. And so, God, we just ask that right now in this moment, those of us who have who've ran, those of us who have avoided, God, standing, standing face to face with that reality that we feel like we're un- unlovable, that we feel like we're not good enough, that we, we feel like, like if we actually expose and get vulnerable with you, that you're going to reject us and tell us that there's no way you could forgive whatever it is we've done. And God, we just thank you that in reality, you're not that kind of God at all. So we just ask you today, God, focus our hearts on you. So with every head bow, every eye closed, just for a moment, let me ask you this question today. Are you here today and you know You know in your heart, in the depths of your soul right now that you need to be forgiven. You need to be forgiven. That you've wrestled with, could you be forgiven? But now you see that God can forgive you. And you know right now that you need to be forgiven. If that's you, all you need to do is accept the forgiveness that God has for you. If you want that forgiveness, raise your hand right now. That's me. I want to be forgiven. Raise your hand if that's you. Awesome. Hands up all over the auditorium. So God, for those who have raised their hands and said that they need that forgiveness, oh God, what a, what a great and awesome choice. So take them, God. Guide them and use them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.